Welcome to SOAS Radio Behind the Music. You're listening to the music of one of Mali's most highly respected griots, Kazimadi Diabati, who'll play live here at SOAS on Monday, the 24th of November, to celebrate the release of his new CD. In this special edition of Behind the Music, we move away from the SOAS concert series to look behind the music of this unique event. As always, let's start with the music. Kazimadi is joined here by Makan Tukara on the Ngoni, Balaki Sissoko on the Kora, and Vincent Sigal on the cello. Allah, 
Sorry from the album Kiriki by Kazimadi Diabati, who'll be playing with this same lineup in the Purcell Rooms at the South Bank on Sunday, November the 23rd, and at our own Kalili Lecture Theatre on Monday the 24th of November. I'm joined here by Casper Melville, who's here to take us behind the music of this special celebration. Hi, Casper. So, Monday the 24th of November, what's going to happen? Well, we've got an event at SOAS. Uh, which is going to feature Kazamadi Jabate, who we've just heard, uh, and partly it's uh, you know celebrating the release of, of his new album uh, Kirike, which is on the No Format label. And in fact, the whole thing starts off with a listening party in the in the junior common room at six, six to seven. So you can go and hear the the whole album. But Kazamadi will also be performing some songs. But what we're doing is mixing that together with a discussion of the relationship between copyright and traditional music, as particularly as it relates to, to artists like Kazamadi. So I will be hosting a discussion which also includes Lucy Duran, who is at SOAS and a very distinguished producer of traditional musics from all around the world, but particularly from Mali, um, who will be talking to Kazamadi about the making of the album and what it means to him, but also sharing with us, you know, her very deep knowledge of Mali and musical traditions to really get a handle on what is it that's special about the griot tradition. I mean, I don't want to give away what she says, but I know, for example, having read her some of her work, that's a tradition that goes back to the 13th century. It's based around families. It's based around an amazing repertoire of music, of traditional music. Um, but of course, it's th- that music is also part of the contemporary modern music world. It's in the music industry. Kazimadi has recorded this album and wants to sell copies of it. You know, and he wants to do that because he wants to have a living in music and feed his family. And so do other 
people in the traditional musics in, in Africa, across Africa, but particularly the Mande tradition, which is strong in Mali. So in this discussion, uh, we'll be talking to Kazem Mali, we'll be talking to Lucy Duran, and also the famed record producer Joe Boyd. The role Joe plays in this is that he, with two other colleagues, runs Carthage Music, which is a music publisher. And what we're trying to get at is what is it that a music publisher does and how can a music publisher help to chase down copyright on behalf of Malian musicians? How does it actually work? And so I'm playing the role of the kind of naive investigator here and asking silly questions like, what does a publisher do? How does traditional music get featured in a copyright world, which is very much based on a certain kind of model of what music is? It's a kind of independent item which can be owned. I mean, not every culture thinks this way. This is a Western mode of thinking, a kind of Eurocentric mode of thinking, which has been laid down in law ever since, well, it goes all the way back to 1709 in in the UK, but organisations who collect copyrights, the the French one, SACEM, has been around since 1851. PRS, which is the British one, has been around since the beginning of the 20th century. And a publisher works in a particular way on behalf of these artists to try and make sure that they get the money that is owed to them. But there are lots and lots of challenges in relation to that. So that's really what we're trying to unpick, is what are the challenges in relation to traditional forms of music, copyright, and how they can be collected. Of course, that includes right up-to-date issues like, well, what about online? What about streaming? Well, let's listen to another track and get ourselves into the mood to be talking about what these issues really imply for musicians like Kazimadi. (laughs) 
قسمانی جدیگه بره مجد So that was the title track of Kazamadi Diabate's new album, Kirike. So, Kasper, for a musician like Kazemadi, how would he manage to make money out of this? Well, the traditional music of the Mande region and the music of the griot is a family-based tradition which goes back centuries. The griots were considered to be variously the go-betweens in society, the people who were liaison between the various levels of society, including the nobles and the peasants, people who adjudicated and performed almost every ritual function, weddings, funerals, circumcisions, you know, legal events, uh, celebrations. 
They were people who were called on to sort of sing the praises of both powerful figures in the society, but also speak up for values, a very strong moral role to play, but music threaded through it. So the griot tradition involves not only singers who, who write songs specially for particular occasions and particular people, but also players of traditional African instruments like the kora and the ngoni and the balafon. And this tradition has been going on for, as I said, for centuries and deeply embedded in Malian culture. And the way that it is paid for, or has traditionally been paid for, is through a system of patronage. So that griots would perform for particularly rich and powerful people and they would get paid to do so. Or they would perform at particular events. So if you're going to get married in Mali, you hire a griot to come and make sure that that's a swinging you know, event and you, you, you get paid. However... That has become under pressure from a, from a variety of different reasons. Obviously, you know, modernity deals a certain blow to those forms of traditional culture. Um, also, recently in Mali, you know, political upheaval um, has has had quite a bad effect on on uh, performers. And for a while, ba- uh, live performance was banned in Bamako. And the the rebels in the north, the the Muslim rebels in the north, were threatening to ban music in a kind of Taliban type of way. So that was obviously having some sort of impact. And so, therefore, the question becomes how can, as it were, a modern griot, a contemporary griot, because although it's part of a long-standing tradition, of course, these people are our contemporaries and they want to have a living now, how do they go about making money? So one one thing which has sort of come onto the horizon, partly through the intervention and the sort of creation of world music, which is the globalisation of these musical forms within which Malian music has been incredibly influential and powerful, you know, people like Salif Keita, and um, and Kazamadi himself and Baseka Kuriate and you know many of the people playing in fact playing on um, on Kazamadi's album they've all had big records on the, in the world music scene and when you have big records and big sales it opens up a new a new revenue stream for you outside of Mali uh, in the international markets and the way that that revenue stream is secured is through the management of your copyrights you know if you write Now, this is where a particular issue comes up in relation to traditional music, because traditional music, if it uh, is written, has no author. It's either anonymous or the author is long dead. This music has been around for a long time. So in principle, that music doesn't belong to anyone and can't be copyrighted. It can, however, be exploited in various ways. But what music publishers figured out on behalf of artists was... And this happened around in, in the late 60s in the UK. It had been happening a lot earlier in America. And this is something that Joe Boyd talks about and will talk about on the 24th, is that they came up with this idea of traditional arranged. Now, what that means is you can take a piece of music which doesn't have an author, which is traditional, but you, if you claim, you can claim copyright because you've arranged it in a certain way and you've been the person that has arranged it and recorded it. And through that mechanism artists working even within a very traditional sphere or even with traditional materials can actually recoup copyright if they've got a good publisher who can follow the trails. I think we need to we do need to look a little bit more into the idea of songs that nobody really knows who wrote them in the first place but someone's going to make some money out of them because they're playing them uh, in their own way interpreting mm-hmm. them. Well, I think that, uh, again, I'm following the expertise of my informant. So Joe Boyd, who, who's brilliant on this because he's been around a long time and has paid attention, and he's been on both sides of the of the street or all sides of the street because he has worked for a record label and has been a producer, so an artist in his own right who wants to recoup revenue, and he's a publisher. Um, Tradar is an ingenious device by which you can 
um, claim uh, copyright on a piece of music which you didn't yourself write, but the arrangement of which makes it an original song. Um, and after all, that's the case. We, we all know that, you know, a new arrangement of a song is often, in many ways, a new song. And, but his key argument about this is, if you don't claim that money, it doesn't, you're, not take, you're not taking the money. It's not like if you don't claim it, the money will go back to the family of the person who originally wrote it all those years ago. It just remains unclaimed. So in effect, it stays in the hands of the record company or whoever is recouping, is, is produced and selling the record or the recording. Um, but the Tradar is a mechanism by which writers, you know, people, artists, who in the end are the people who, you know, who make the, the bulk of the, the creative aspects of the music that we like, can, can get rewarded. And it seems to me actually a quite ingenious way to sort of hack the system. Uh, so, you know, you've got the copyright system on one hand within which everyone's working, but there are ways you can hack it and make it work for the artist. It does come down to a certain level of trust. You know, do you believe that these people are in it for themselves to make... I don't think anyone went into, like, publishing or producing world music, you know, to make a fortune, in all honesty. I don't think anyone ever has. Ironic, really, because world music's the only musical genre that people know absolutely was created by record company executives all sitting in a pub <laughs> one day, you know. But I think the point is what kind of recorded company executives were they? They were independent-minded music lovers. And albeit that may sound, you know, cliched or naive, I just think that in my investigations of this area, the rich, creative, rather touching relationships between um, record company people, publishers, producers and the artists is what sustains this whole thing and, and the listeners. And of course, they're all listeners and they're all participants in the musical culture as well at the same time. So it kind of works. And we do have one of those tracks on the album. And now, uh, uh, the last track on the album is called Hara. It uh, was not composed by anyone identified. Well, he's not, it's not Trad R, no. It's just, it's just called traditional in this case. So I think in that sense, in that, for that particular track, there will be no copyright payable for, for an author. It's oh. a nod to the tradition. <laughs> As Casper says, a nod to the tradition.
Kazemadi Diabate's rendition of the traditional song Hera, featuring the sweet sounds of Baleke Sisoko on the Kora. You're listening to Behind the Music. I'm Karen Boswell and I'm talking to Casper Melville about some of the issues around copyright and ownership of traditional songs like Hara that'll be discussed when Kazimadi presents this new album, Kiriki, here at SOAS on Monday, November the 24th. So, Casper, how important is copyright and the work of music publishers for musicians like Kazimadi? Is he being exploited or is he being supported? Companies like Carthage, small independents who are very much working on behalf of the artist um you know i mean is it capitalism i don't know i prefer there's a there's a writer called jeremy gilbert who who makes i think a very important distinction between commerce and capitalism capitalism is about accumulating capital commerce is you know buying and selling stuff you know and everyone within that can make a living and not feel that they're exploiting except in the best possible version of exploiting which is getting the most out of Whereas capitalism, which is about the accrual of, 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 you know, excess resources that you can then deploy somewhere else for some other purposes, it's not really what we're talking about, I don't think. Not in relation to, not, not in my study, not in relation to world music. Uh, talking to the French 
uh, publisher, uh, Laurent Bizo, who runs No Format Records, which is the label that uh, this album comes out on, he told me that he started off running a record label. And, you know, record label revenues traditionally have been in selling records. And when I say records, I'm showing my age. I mean, you know, CDs or whatever format it's in. But we all know that those are falling steeply, the revenues from there. And anyway, he said, when you're dealing with artists like world music artists who are never going to sell multiple millions of copies of records, your main source of revenue may not be actually selling the record, but it might be recouped from performance. So when someone performs your song, you get a payment through PRS or through SASM, um, being played on the radio, and most importantly nowadays, probably if you can get sync rights, which means if you're, you can get a piece of music used in a film or in an ad, that's really big money. And so he said that I was dragged down the path of publishing, and he had been a lawyer, so he kind of had the skills, um, because that's actually through these little tributaries, he told, called them, small rivers of revenue, you can actually construct, you know, the basis for a sound rec recording career, which is not all about how many records have you sold. I think that's a good cue for another track from the album. Let's listen to Tumaru. This track features the Ngoni player Makan Tunkara, and I doubt very much that when he was playing, he had any of these issues that we're discussing in his mind. <laughs> Come on, you 
sounds of Vincent Segal on the cello and Lancini Coyati on the balafon, ending Tumaru from Kase Madi Diabate's new album Kiriki. I'm Karen Boswell and I'm talking to Casper Melville. We've been talking about the matters of money and ownership and copyright that lie behind the music when an album like this is launched. So Casper, what about local sales? The other big challenge in relation to Malian artists is the state of the domestic Malian market, which is basically so dominated by piracy as to, it, it appears, I haven't completed this portion of the research, but it appears that there is virtually none or perhaps even no legitimate legal record companies left in Mali. They've all gone out of business. And yet you can buy CDs and cassettes on any street corner. And when I interviewed Abiseku Koyati, for example, the Ngoni player, you know, he described a situation where he's coming out of his house in Bamako and walking around, he's seeing his own recordings all around him, but he's not making any money from them. There was a famous time in 2005 when some rappers and some traditional musicians got together, including Baseko and many others, some of the big, uh, Omu Sangare and some of the big names in, in Malian music, hired a bus, went round Bamako, grabbing all these pirated content, piling them into this bus. And they took them down to the Minister of Culture's office, but he wasn't there at the time. And they piled them all up and set fire to them as this big protest. But according to Baseku Koyati, despite the fact that Bumdo, who is the local collection agency, committed themselves to you know trying to stamp out this kind of piracy, they ha- were unable to do it, because partly because of the huge power of, of the people doing this kind of piracy, uh, you know, the revenue that's available, and also partly because the simple fact that people are going to buy pirated content when it's much cheaper than anything that's taxed. You know, that's just a, a reality, really, of the situation. So so what European publishers, European and American publishers, are trying to do, and as Joe describes it, Joe Boyd, is to 
work on behalf of these artists to make sure they get the maximum amount of revenue they can from their world sales and channel it in as clear and transparent and trustworthy as possible way back to the artists so that they can consider doing what they do um, you know, a viable career option, and so will their children. So let's listen to another track, one that will be sold hopefully all over the rest of the world and will make lots of money for Casemiro Diabati and his family through these systems which you'll all be able to hear about on Monday the 24th. <laughs> Ungelende yuna koni nyagere garaba 
was Simbo, the first track on Kazimazi Djibati's new album being launched at SOAS on Monday the 24th of November. I'm here with Casper Melville and we're talking about the issues of copyright for musicians such as Kazimazi Djibati. So what are the solutions, Casper, to... Uh, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a fair yeah. comment and I th- or question and I think that p- part of what we've we've been looking into are the, v- are the various different ways that people have proposed that you can... Uh, you know, preserve, sustain cultural traditions, sometimes called folklore. So leaving aside copyright, what are the others? What might, you know, what are, what are the others? There's a tradition within ethnomusicology, quite a strong propensity to describe copyright as variously, you know, Eurocentric, neocolonial, inappropriate for uh, to be applied to f- folkloric, intangible cultural, you know, items. Why? Because it focuses on this notion of the individual genius, the creative, you know, the one creative person who wrote the thing. You can't really handle the notion of collective creativity very well. So if copyright's inadequate, what's another system? So since 2000, the World Intellectual uh, Property Office, which is a part of the UN, uh, which is sort of whose remit is to look at these issues, has had what it calls an intergovernmental group um, Look at an intergovernmental committee looking at the notion of copyright, and it's atta- it's quite a broad remit because it includes both uh, cultural products like art and music, and also genes, and you know uh, medicines and things like that. And what what's a better way to preserve those rather than allowing, as it were, the world of commerce to get its greedy, grubby hands on them? So they've had now twenty eight meetings since two thousand. Um, it took them seven or eight meetings to agree on a definition of folklore. In fact, I think they've agreed to disagree on the notion of folklore. And now 
uh, at, since 2009, they are committed to developing, you know, proper legal instruments for the protection of this. But according to those who, who are commenting on this process and that I've been reading and talking to and who know about the process, there are serious problems with it, uh, problems of, of legal definition. How do you define a folklore? Does it have to be something that's been a completely continuous thing all the way back into history? What if there was an interruption in it for a, a, at one point or another? How do you actually decide which, uh, whether one tradition is part of another tradition or an offshoot of it or a subgenre of it? Serious questions. Another big question concerns um, who, get, who will be the beneficiary of this and how will the beneficiaries be rewarded? And the problem is that we live in a world of nation states. So the nation state is likely to be the kind of holder of this tradition and the recouper, at least in the first instance, of the benefits, the money that comes from it. But looking at these cultural traditions that we're talking about, they're often not national in any simple way. They're either associated strongly with a particular location within a larger nation. Let's think of Welsh traditional music. You know, Should the money for Welsh music, if that was so protected, go to the British government? Or look at Mande music, like we're talking about the Malian music, which is not contained securely within the borders of Mali, but associated with a particular ethnic group, which is both in Mali and in Guinea and crosses all, all kinds of national borders. So that's one big process, which is going on, hasn't really delivered anything. And in terms of, as it were, getting Casamada his money, <laughs> it's absolutely not on the cards at the moment, right? So another possibility is to imagine that these things should not be owned by anyone you know so Anthony McCann who's an ethnomusicologist writing about Irish traditional music has talked about the way that it's much better thought of as a kind of gift economy that really it's the real place that it happens is in sessions where people are swapping ideas willy-nilly you know kind of promiscuous use of cultural texts and he even cites some musicians who say they're never happier than when they hear their own music being played within one of these sessions without them being credited for it. They don't want to be the owners. They want it. That's all very well and good. But he, what he doesn't say is whether they'd be equally happy if they heard their own tunes, you know, popping up on other people's albums <laughs> without being credited. So I think there are big question marks about that. So in a way, one of, my, one of the people I interviewed sort of described um, copyright a bit like democracy. You know, it's the least worst system. You know, fatally flawed, but, you know, the lesser of many evils. Because, why is that? Well, because simply put, copyright law exists, it is established revenue streams, and it exists in 200 countries in the world because of the Berne Convention, which has been embedded now in global trade agreements like TRIPS, which is backed up by serious players, you know, by the Americans and the UK and by laws. You can get your money, and you can get your money as long, and all you need to do is establish that you own a copyright and register it. You don't need to have a big battery of lawyers you just need to do that. And then the money and the, the collection agencies, which have been around a long time, SASOM and PRS and, and these others, there's some in Switzerland and Gemma in Germany, you know, they, they pass the money on. They are non-profit. They are working on behalf of all artists to deliver them back their money. And so when I spoke to the Malian artists and said, why would you bother with a, with a UK publisher? They said, well, because I get, money, I get revenue, and not only that, but I get a statement, a clear statement telling me what I've sold, why I'm getting the money, you know, transparent, clear, trustworthy system. So while it may not be a perfect system, and there are, have been people who have suggested it's kind of neo-colonialism in a way, and, you know, wouldn't it be better if Africa had its own collection agencies, you know, which really functioned very well? And this does appear to be a bit of a problem talking to the artists. You know, I haven't independently verified that, but 
um, everyone agrees that it would be. And that maybe this some, the, the Western uh, Copyright Collection Agency could do a better job and would like to do a better job of, of helping to foster the similar kind of transparent, efficient culture in, in, in the African countries where these, this music is actually made. But until that happens, or alongside that happening, what you really do need is people, smart people who are working on your behalf to collect what you're owed from you know radio plays in Germany and England and America and and you know ad revenues and that really may be the key to a long stand you know to proper income in the long term. So thank you so much for sharing some of these fascinating issues. Uh, I think we've just opened the lid, and uh, so for anyone listening. Clearly, let's go and listen to the musician playing, Kasema Didjabati. Can, can I just let people mm-hmm. know that although um, it appeared for a while that tickets were sold out for that event, in fact, we're going to be making some more available. So um, there, will be some, there will be some seats available still on the 24th. So do come down and uh, listen to the album and come and see the show. Thank you very much for coming to the studio with this sneak preview of the album, Casper. I think I'll be listening to it quite a lot from now on. Casper will be chairing the discussion on Monday and will be joined by SOAS's own Malian music expert, Lucy Duran, and record producer and writer Joe Boyd. Kazimadi will be talking to Lucy Duran and Joe Boyd will speak about his role as Kazimadi's publisher. With live music from Kazimadi himself, it sounds like it'll be a great night. I'm Karen Boswell and I've been talking to Casper Melville. This was a SOAS Radio Behind the Music special and playing us out, Kazimadi Diabati, with the title track of his new album, Kirike. Allah 
Kiri kero, namori beni, kiri kero, ijeli zolau. 